I mean, the number one thing is accents. Where are the accents in the music? You're going to do rock. It's not, it's going to be on two and four. Like, and like, are you playing it like that? It's not just about knowing it. Are you making it clear enough? And then you got to have all the drum stuff in there. So it's never going to be on the music. You got to play along to the recording and you got to listen to the drums and you got to add whatever drum rhythm in some way you can with a piano. And every pianist is going to do it a different ways and at any given time. So probably the same pianist doing the same song four times might doing a different way just because like the hands will do something different with the rhythm but you're just matching what you're hearing that's that's really important and then there's a there's a touch and that's going to be different for every style so like rock is going to be different from latin you know like i had a whole year where i played latin that was a whole other thing because now you're looking at clave you're looking at matching with the percussion even if he's not there you got to hear it you know what i mean like all this stuff you just have to it's just so specific and then jazz is going to be a whole other thing and where do you put the beats and where do you put the notes in between the beats? Where do they, you know, are they in the front of the beat, the back of the beat? And it's specific for everything. It's like really intense. Hi, I'm Ben Kaplow and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today I spoke with Geraldine Anello. Geraldine Anello has conducted Kiki Boots and School of Rock on Broadway, The Fantastics Off-Broadway, and played in the orchestras of Broadway's School of Rock, Kinky Boots, Bronx Tale, Aladdin, and On the Town. She has also worked on the Broadway productions SpongeBob the Musical, An American in Paris, On Your Feet, and Matilda. Anello served as music director of We Are the Tigers Off-Broadway and of Renaissance for the Transport Group and Finian's Rainbow at the Irish Repertory Theatre. She was the music supervisor and conductor of the benefit concert Double Standards at Town Hall in New York City, featuring Sarah Bareilles and Ingrid Michelson, amongst others. She is the leader of Theater Music Directors, an industry group of 8,500 members worldwide for which she offers professional advancement classes taught by Broadway conductors. Also a poet, she is the author of the poetry collection Naked, available on Kindle and paperback. She received an MM from Western Michigan University and a DMA from Boston University. In the interview, she talked about her transition from a formal classical training to playing shows in a variety of styles. She compared her current teaching philosophy with the one she was brought up in, and she talked about some of the stylistic differences between classical and Broadway piano playing that she picked up over the years. Hope you enjoy the interview. Geraldine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited to be on. Like, I lo- I'm just so excited. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, well, today we're going to talk about your path from a classical background to working on Broadway shows in a mm. lot of different styles. Yay. I think that transition from a classical training to a multi-style performance career is comparable to what a lot of piano teachers are going through. Many of us, and I would put myself in this category, had a classical background, but want to teach and perform in a wide range of styles. So I'd like to talk about how you branched off from your training and also give some advice on playing piano in a wide range of styles. That was so hard. I mean, that was just really hard. Tell me, tell me. Yes. Um, (laughs) So I want to start off with your childhood. So your lessons growing up, I mean, were they completely cookie cutter classical? Like, was there any way that they departed from standard classical? Oh, yeah. I had a Russian piano teacher. So it was as classical as it gets. It was just like, she was like you imagine a Russian piano teacher to be. She was so, so scary. She (laughs) probably was mean, although she was not really mean to me because I think I somehow managed to like be at the level she wanted me to be at. 
But I remember overhearing her one day say to my mother, if she was in Russia, you know, she would be studying, like practicing piano five to six hours a day. We would take her out of school. And my mom was like, oh, that's amazing. And I was like, oh my goodness, wow. thank God I'm not there. Because <laughs> I was like, I don't want to wow. practice five, six hours a day. I'm like a six-year-old. I'm very happy to be in school with my friends. Point is, it's safe to say you were not growing up working with your teacher on Broadway songs. She probably would have looked down on it. I mean, it probably was not something she would approve of, I doubt. I Interesting. Mean. <laughs> okay, so then now turning to when you became a teenager, and I understand that's when you started teaching piano yourself. So when you started out as a piano teacher, was your teaching, like your training, like also very strict classical, or did you start branching off once you started teaching? Well, I, I, I remember the first lesson I taught because it was to the waffle man of the waffle truck who wanted oh, to take piano lessons. That's a big and name. He was, he was, honor. His, you know, I mean, he was in his 50s. And I remember I was so terrified. I did not want to teach. My mom was like, listen, you got to make some kind of money. So do that. And I was like, I don't, I don't know enough. Like I'm 15. Like, what do you want me to teach? And I remember like trying to give him my all. And that was the first and the most important lesson in teaching I ever had, which was I learned quickly that we naturally want to give too much when we start teaching. Mm. You know, we just want to show that we are at the level of a teacher. And to be a good teacher, you don't need to be at your level. You need to be at the level of the student. Mm. And so I very quickly learned that I was just demanding, like not demanding, but I was just asking too much of the, the okay. they were just getting started. So that was just such a great lesson right away. Huh. Okay. And, and stylistically in these lessons, was it still classical? You know, I don't remember. I think, you know, it's like when you follow the methods, I always followed the methods. Okay. They're great. If I get a book, whatever is on the book, there's probably always a boogie woogie somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I mean, by that time of my life, I know I was very much doing a lot of pop songs. I was singing a lot. Okay. I was accompanying myself a lot. So what transpired in the lesson as far as styles, you know, they were beginners. I don't know that anything can be qualified as style outside of beginner. Right. <laughs> but we still see some inklings of you departing from the training you received, even at a young age when you started teaching. So I I guess you could see that oh, as yeah. kind of foreshadowing what eventually happened. Oh, I, I mean, that kept me in piano, like playing pop songs. And ah. and then so, soon after that, I started writing songs. Right and I guess that, that was like behind your Russian teacher's back. By then I had moved to mainland France. Okay. So by then I had another teacher in the conservatory mm. um, who was also very classical. There was not, no, actually, I remembered asking at about 16 if I could take jazz lessons. And my mom saying, well, I don't know. Let me check with your teacher. And he mm -hmm. said, no. <laughs> He said, okay. I should not take jazz lessons because his, the way he said it was that I was putting stones on a path. And if I went into jazz, it would be a different path. And to this day, I, I, I have not forgiven him for that because <laughs> it would have helped me so much. And uh, I would have gotten better so much quicker if I had taken jazz then. And I knew yes, I needed to take jazz. I feel the same jazz. way about myself. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, no, it's not like I didn't know better. I knew better. And they said, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so now I want to turn to when you first arrived at America at age 20. So you had, I guess, done a little bit of experience with pop styles. You said that you did a lot of that um, when you moved to mainland France. Um, and a lot of the adjustments you made when you came to America could each be the subject of their own podcast interview. <laughs> you had to, I know, learn to speak English. You learned a ton about networking, and that led to your first book. And we could have do a whole other interview just on the networking you did. But for today's interview, I want to talk about musical adjustments. So once you decided you're in yes. America, you had a classical training, you yes. want to go the musical theater route. Did you make any like musical projects for yourself or did you alter your daily practice routine or like what sort of musical adjustments did you make when you decided you wanted to play piano or music direct in Broadway you shows? Know, you know, Ben, at that time I was very much victim to what we all go through, which is in the learning process when you don't know what you don't know. 
So mm. I would love to tell yeah. you that I knew what I didn't know, but genuinely I didn't. To me, I was this, you know, I had this good level as a classical pianist, therefore, yeah. of course I could play the other styles. There was no part of me that knew. And because you have to keep in mind, uh -huh. there was not a resource like theater music directors on Facebook that there is now. There was nowhere at that time there was zero resources. There was nobody that said, you need to learn styles. That's why in the group, I'm always telling everybody, focus on style, because then at least you know what you don't know. Nobody told me that. Nobody around me knew that. Nobody, they, you know what I mean? Like the, just the sheer fact of the knowledge that's in the group now, that did not exist when I started, you know? So, so I, I just had no idea. It really came over years and over people slowly telling me things but it uh, also took me getting to a certain level to be with these people that could tell me things because for a long time I wasn't necessarily with them so the first thing I learned that were very musical theater oriented were actually the use of pedal the use of keyboards the use of sounds and changing the volume depending on the sound like and at the time it was just like there was no main stage this was like a keyboard and you use the sounds of I mean I sound like I'm 100 years old I'm not 100 years old uh but you know there was just like buttons and you still had to use the actual volume button on the keyboard to adjust the strings make them decrescendo and stuff <laughs> and so i remember that was the first like foray in that and just playing in pits but yeah quick question when you talk about pedals you don't mean the pedals like the damper pedal you mean like patch change pedals like you're talking yeah. about technology okay and that wasn't even then that started like for me in 2010 is when i first used my first volume pedal Oh. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So okay. So a lot of what you're describing are adjustments in terms of learning the technology, and you're talking about volume buttons and pedals. What about like actually the way that you play pieces, like learning how to stylistically play in a way where you don't play everything as if it was written by Beethoven, and kind of like specifically musical adjustments. Yeah. So you're saying that wasn't self-initiated. That was through kind of mentors that you met over the year. I didn't know that I didn't do it right. I thought like a lot of classical players, I thought, you know, it's like if you're a classical player and you can play everything, you give, you get a rock sheet music with quarter notes. There's no yeah. part of you that thinks you're not doing it right. You're like, oh, I'm going to nail it. You don't know that you're not supposed to play what's on the page. You mm. don't know you're not supposed to, you know, you're, you're supposed to have certain accents. You don't know you're not supposed to phrase the same way. You don't know those things unless you were taught them. You mm. just don't know. So like that. Yeah. That's, okay. <laughs> I want to talk about each of those three things that you just said there. Um, hold on so, wait, so the first thing you said was about the written page. Um, and you, you don't know when you started, as you said, you don't know what you don't know, that you don't know that you're not supposed to play everything on the written page. So I want to talk about that. So in, in the classical music world, obviously, if you're playing a piece by Beethoven, it's assumed that you'd play every note and rhythm exactly the way Beethoven wrote it. But in musical theater and pop, there's kind of a range. I mean, there are some musical theater pieces where you're supposed to play as written, like maybe Sondheim. Then there are some where it's like have parts written in, but it's assumed that what's written in is kind of a guide. And then there's like chord charts where, of course, you have no choice but to improvise. So how do you go about determining when you're in a Broadway show how much to stick to the written music and how much to improvise. And on a quick note on that, I, it's interestingly enough, I also come from the opera world and the opera has a lot of traditions of things that are not written down that you just have to know through education of like, okay. this is how we do this here. This is the spot where we're allowed to free. This is also because a lot of it is reduction from orchestration. So the first thing you do as an accompanist and in opera is actually to decide what you're going to take away from the music. So it's the opposite of Broadway, not add on, but take away. Right. And then also what you're going to add on sometimes, you're going to decide to do that. So there is a lot of process in the classical accompanying world that actually does change what's on the page so I was used to doing that 
But um, when I really learned a lot of these things truly was in New York. And I knew years before, I knew about three or four years before that I did not know how to do it. However, the problem then was I could not find the information anywhere. I remember Googling. I remember looking for information. I remember trying to be like how to play these things. And I could not find anything that was geared towards classical musicians wanting to shift. So really everything was geared to not really technically advanced pianists. And I was like, I want the like version of like, you can play anything, you just need the information. And I could not find it, I could not. And so I learned everything. I would say a lot of it was in New York because in New York, there's zero tolerance. Okay. Did you have specifically perfect. like a mentor in New York who taught you no. about this or, okay. Uh, any gig in New York, they will, they will uh... just. I mean, first of all, you're in the room, you know, if you start and you're a music assistant, you're in the room, you see how they play, you hear how they play, you're looking at the music, you see how it doesn't sound like what they're playing is not what's on the page and you're seeing what they're adding. But then, you know, when you're starting to play on Broadway, you all, you usually a lot of times, for, well, first of all, you're going to sit in with the musicians, but sometimes depending on the show, they'll sit with you in a rehearsal room after you've practiced the show and they'll be like, okay, let's go through the show. And, and and it's actually, particularly if you're going to be a rehearsal pianist, to be honest, like rehearsal pianist is the big, like the harder thing to do because you don't have the, the orchestra. And so that's when they're going to spend a lot of time like, oh, you missed this drum fell. Oh, here, make sure you play this flute part because the, the, the singers, the dancers needed to do this little foot thing. And that's really when you, you know, through just seeing how people interpret a score and what they're thinking of, you'll learn to think that way and then play that way. Oh, so this was all on the job training. You still, even yeah. when you were in New York, never had any formal like lessons on any of this. It was all observing what other people did. Yeah, yeah. I tell everybody. Everybody thinks once you get to this level, you're 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 not gonna you're gonna feel very confident yeah. because now that you're working on Broadway, everybody's gonna be like, oh my gosh, like that means you're so good. It's the opposite. You get to the higher level, you're gonna be kicked and kicked and kicked because uh -huh. you have to perform at such a level, and everything is gonna be perfectionist, and everybody's gonna tell you everything you can do better all the time. So the imposter syndrome is going to be real and it's going to be strong and it's going to be making you so much better. And, and, and there's no way around it. I don't, you know, I don't think there's a way around it. Okay. The second thing that you mentioned, I'm um, in that list of three that you gave earlier of things to kind of adapt to in the Broadway style is you uh, brought up like accents and rhythm. And so I definitely want to talk about this. I've seen a lot of Broadway music director is advising kind of more beginner pianists to like work on your time. And Alex Lacamoire, who is the music director of Hamilton, said he loves hiring pianists who can make the piano sound like a drum kit. And I've seen you talk about the importance of groove as one of the kind of main skills for classically trained pianists to develop if they want to work in pop or Broadway world. So how do you define groove and how do you advise working with students on adding this kind of rhythmic elements to their performances of contemporary pieces? I mean, the number one thing is accents. Where are okay. the accents in the music? You're going to do rock. It's not, it's going to be on two and four. Like, and like, are you playing it like that? It's not just about knowing it. Are you making it clear enough? Okay. And then you got to have all the drum stuff in there. So it's never going to be on the music. You got to play along to the recording and you got to listen to the drums and you got to add whatever drum rhythm in some way you can with a piano. And every pianist oh. is going to do it a different way. Some it's going to, and at any given time. So probably the same pianist doing the same song four times might doing a different way just because like the hands will do something different with the rhythm, uh -huh. but you're just matching what you're hearing. That's, that's really important. And then there's a, there's a touch and that's going to be different for every style. So like mm -hmm. rock is going to be different from Latin. You know, like I had a whole year where I played Latin. That was a whole other thing because now you're looking at clave, you're looking at matching with the percussion. Even if he's not there, you got to hear it. You know what I mean? Like all this stuff, you just have to, it's just so specific. And then jazz is going to be a whole other thing. And where do you put 
the beads and where do you put the notes in between the beads? Where do the, you know, are they the front of the bead, the back of the bead? Okay. And it's specific for everything. It's like really intense. Okay. okay. So you said in rock music, you've, you have to accent two and four. I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify. Is there another quick thing like that that you could provide to give some ideas? The drums. The drums. I mean, that's the next, that's the next yeah. thing. Just add in the drums. Okay. Like, just, that's it. You do those two things. But then, okay, I'll give you one quick thing. Always play the bass and active down. Always. Yeah, I learned that from a class that you, um, not that you taught, but that you offered through uh, the theater music directors group was about, um, especially if you have a walking bass line, to always play it an octave lower. Yeah. So what he said, which is actually even more intense than that, is like, let's say you have a left-hand part where it's two voices and one voice is filling in the harmonies and the other voice is doing a walking bass line. Even if dropping the bass an octave down means you have to ditch some of those inner harmonies that were written, it's worth it in exchange yes. for being able to play the pitch that a real bass would be playing. Yeah, and with rock, a lot of time, you'll even get your right hand lower as well. Oh. And then you're just okay. digging in. You're just like, you're, you know, you're kind of hitting and, you know. Okay, so going back to this idea of different styles, you said a lot of what you do uh, or what you did with these shows is you got a lot of feedback in real time and you listen to these recordings and you listen to what the drums are doing and you think of ways that you can incorporate that into your piano playing. Um, so going off of that, a, a lot of musicals make references to specific styles as you're talking about. Um, and a lot of the shows that you've worked on on Broadway are no exception. So and you music directed Kinky Boots, which has influences of a lot of style, They're pop, funk, tango. Um, you were in School of Rock, which of course draws on rock and you performed in On Your Feet, which is Q Cuban fusion pop music. So going back to this idea of style, when you're trying to figure out how to play in a certain style, I know you already mentioned playing along with drums. Is there anything else that you kind of tend to do when you're confronted with a new show that you're involved with that specifically references a certain style to make sure that your playing is kind of idiomatic? I never play by myself. Okay. Pretty much, I don't. I will if I'm going to be a rehearsal pianist, which I was, you, you said I performed on the New York Feet. I was rehearsal pianist for them. I never played the show, but that okay. if I'm going to be a rehearsal piano because I'm going to be alone in the room playing, then, then yeah, I will at some point step away from playing with the recording. But if I'm prepping for a show, I am playing with the recording pretty much nonstop. If there's a spot oh, that's, that's technically, so if there's a spot that's technically difficult that I need to work, then sh right. of course I won't do it. But I will get that recording in me and I will play with the recording. Mm -hmm. And so when I do rehearsal piano now, I will remove the recording. I will, I will sit the next day. I will start playing a song, one song by myself. Then I will play it with the recording to see how close to it I was. Oh, interesting. I test myself. It's like, okay, well, how close was I? Oh, I missed that drum thing. Oh, I missed. Well, usually I don't because by that point you write it in, but it's like, oh, I... I didn't really nail that one style thing. Oh, I missed that accent. But I write a lot of things. I write yeah. the drums and the accents and everything. Um, playing with the recording is, is really important. And then, you know, in rehearsal for Broadway, anything that's in a click track, I make myself a click track um, list on the, my metronome um, on my phone, and I will play with one earbud in my ear in rehearsal. So I'm mm. with the click track in rehearsal. Mm. And so I plan when am I pushing my metronome because it's kind of clunky, right? You're in rehearsal. You can't. It's right. not as smooth. So, but if you have a, 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 you know, a choreographer that goes, you know, three, you know, wait, uh, it's been a year now. I forget my numbers. Five, six, <laughs> oh gosh, a year of confinement. I can't count anymore. <laughs> and they'll go, they'll go five, six, and maybe it's a different tempo than the click track. So then you start your click on seven, eight, or maybe just on eight. And then you start, you know, it's, it's, it's a choreography for yourself to get the click in. But I just don't want to be playing a rehearsal on Broadway where they need to make sure they're on the right. click and they're not. Right. 
Well, that's so interesting that so much of your practicing is with a recording and that that's kind of how you help you developed a sense of groove and how to play authentically in a style. I did a little bit of that when um, in an earlier lesson I had, I was realizing when I was having to play things that were marked swung, I would kind of oscillate between being fully swung and kind of straight and halfway between. So I did a lot of practicing with like a swung drum beat and headphones and just maniacally trying to yeah. follow the drums. And I think that's sort of what you're um, describing. I mean, but just um, a quick note, this is for yeah. subbing and playing shows that exist on Broadway. Now, as a music director, when I do new shows myself, obviously there's no recording to go off of, I will oftentimes listen to the composer's recordings because that's okay. the closest to their intent that yeah. I can have because it's going to be different than the page. Right. So then I'll go off of that, but then it's different because now I'm the one creating it. What do I want where? Do I want this yeah. here? Do I want that there? So it's a whole different process. Right. And uh, earlier in this interview, you brought up phrasing and how that's different across styles. Is that also how you figure out kind of how to phrase things or what's idiomatic in a style is also by playing along with these recordings? No, that, okay. I mean, I worked with wonderful people, so they just told me. But, you know, okay. it, it, the main difference is particularly because I came from opera. In opera, you always have to breathe with a singer. Like, it's years of training to learn how to do that. You should never do that on Broadway, pretty much. Unless really? you're doing an operetta, unless you're doing something that's very classical, if you're, you know, depending on the style. But if you're doing anything else, like, they're going to backfire. It's going to kill them. And yeah. I always thought, it's like, they're going to backfire, and you're there waiting for them. They yep. will get out of breath so fast. And so, no, I was told by music supervisors, like, hey, no, keep straight. And it took me a while to be able to trust that. Because it's not that you're not technically able to do it. It's that you, you're so used to thinking with the singers. Follow that you're the like, singer, yeah. You're like, I'm, you really want me to keep going, but they're not there yet. And that's, yeah. that is what it is on Broadway. That is, I would say, if I had Broadway to say... Broadway or the, Broadway theater. Right, right. If I had to say the number one mistake that I made when I first started out music directing, it was what you're describing, is anytime a singer backphrase, I would just follow them. And so what happens is the song just gets slower and slower, and it just screeches along like a slug. And yeah, and I do think that's a difference between the opera world, is you have to just stay to the beat and assume that if the singer kind of slows down, or so, that they will they know what they're doing and they'll catch up to you. Yeah. Um. Okay, so now talking about how kind of some of this would apply to teaching. Let's say a student came to you and was really passionate about pop and, and you know, was much more excited about playing on Broadway than playing at Carnegie Hall. So there are some teachers who kind of do the same thing with every student and the attitude is, you know, there are some rudiments, everyone needs to know this, you know, what you want to do with it is up to you. I mean, how would you work with a student if they came to you really excited about pop and Broadway and uh, ambivalent about classical? So, you know, I taught for a million years. Like I've literally taught for decades. And so I know I love teaching and I'm very passionate about teaching and I can get into like teaching philosophies over and over and over and it can be very detailed and stuff. But the main thing to me is I've taught also a lot of adults and the amount of adults I had that would always say, well, you know, I used to take piano when I was a child, but my teacher was so mean. So I stopped, but I like the piano and now I want to try again. As a result, I have one agenda as a piano teacher always. And it is first and foremost, keep them enjoying the piano. As players and as listeners, I never want to do anything that will take that away from them. That to me would be like the worst thing I could do. So I don't care about the rest as much as I care about their actual enjoyment and respect for the instrument that they already do enjoy. So as a result, yes, I will absolutely, they want to do it, we're going to do it. I mean, is it at the level? Do we have to do it now? Can we wait three months if it's not at the level? Things like that. But absolutely, if they want to do it, why shouldn't they? 100%. Mm -hmm. 
And do you have, when you have students like this, do you have them play along with I haven't had the students that in groups at that level. So no, if I did, um, I probably would. I mean, probably, we, well, we probably would listen to it, you know, and then play it and probably play it with a tra click track, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, do you have any other thoughts um, in general about how those of us with classical backgrounds can work on becoming more multifaceted, both in the way that we play and also in the way humility. that we teach and the way that you I have. think a lot of us, because we've practiced for so long and we okay. reach such a high level of technique, tend to think we are that translates to other style. And while we're excellent at classical, we are not at the other styles. And it's not because the other styles have less notes and sound less yeah. um, difficult that they are not as detailed and specific as classical is. So part of that is just dropping back to humility and being like, I'm at level 800 of classical piano and I'm at level 101 of rock and taking it from there with that humility. I think it's really key to just at least start improving. Great. Um, okay, so now switching gears a little bit. So not only do you dabble in a lot of styles of music, but you also dabble in many fields even beyond music. So you recently released a volume of poetry Woo. called Naked. <laughs> Can you tell us about this? Yes, I'm so excited. It just got released on Tuesday. It was number one in three categories for bestseller, number one in new release in five categories on Amazon. I'm so excited. So it's called Naked. It's part of a three-part series uh, of collections of poems called Truth. Second collection is coming out in a couple months. So I'm working on that right now, which is very exciting. Um, I've been writing poems, you know, since I'm a teenager. I, I wrote songs also when I was a teenager. So I think, you know, as you're an, for me, I see it as I'm an artist. And art will come out of me one way or another. Hmm. And I'm just going to obey what it, when it comes, the way it comes. It's like, okay, you want to come through me through the piano, so be it. You want to come through me with songs? Okay, oh, no, it's poetry. Interesting. So I just follow along the muse and where she takes me. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited. It's a story. Uh, Nikit is a story from beginning to end. It's narrative, uh, which um, I think is cool personally. And they're short poems and very much, uh, it's all in English. And um, they have lots of twists and humor and, you know, they're very contemporary. I, I, I'm really happy with the, you know, the reaction I'm getting from everyone. It seems everybody's enjoying it and it's speaking to them. So I'm, I'm really grateful for all the support I've been getting with it. So when you say that it's a story, does that mean there's like a plot with characters or is it a more philosophical approach to the word story yeah uh yeah i mean it's more of a poetic version but yeah. you definitely understand what's happening there's a beginning a middle and an end mm -hmm. uh there's some characters but nobody is named but there are dates it is grounded in reality there are dates and times um so that that's i mean as an artist that's what was interesting because i wrote the poems i mean I, i'm just gonna geek on art but i just wrote all the poems at once with no conception that they would ever become a book there was no goal to it it was just like right. an outpouring of my soul uh, genuinely like no no goal but I just needed to write and then after a while I was like well I have a bunch of them like maybe I can put them in a collection and figuring out what that would be that was the hard work that was like wait how does that work how do you put poems in an order that makes sense and as I went through different versions at some point it, I felt like I could actually make it a story which was exciting because it's not always done with poetry it's usually more one one-offs um, and so having that kind of like body of work, and I mean, that's interesting because, you know, you come from musical theater, of course, everything is going to be story based at some point, it just makes yeah. sense from my background. But again, I didn't intend and so then it became that right. and, and it worked. So yeah. the other thing that I would find interesting about thinking between the connection between musical theater and poetry is at least in musical theater when where the lyrics are coming from characters that are meant to be delivered in real time, there's kind of a pressure, I think, to be conversational and make immediate sense 
in a way that a lot of poetry is not, and you're allowed to, to you know, make be a little bit more abstract and not be conversational. Uh, would you say that your poetic style is in any way influenced from like being so versed in musical theater and learning musical theory lyrics, or do you see it as completely? Distinct? I mean, in a way, it does do what you say. It's very conversational, but on the other hand, it actually is very similar to the style of songwriting lyrics I used to do as a teenager. Because I tend to do this thing where like I change, I use one word a lot through the poems and then at the very end I will switch around its meaning. And I did that in French in lyrics and I do it now in English. So in a way it's kind of always been my style. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's so fun. I mean, so here's what's interesting about musical theater and like the artistic process is that as I was coming out with this book, um, I was told that I should have an audible version um, and an audiobook version. And I was like, wow, well, I never thought about it for poetry. And one of my best friends, luckily, is actually one of the top voices for Audible. So, of course, I went immediately to her and said, are you interested in doing this by any chance? I would be so honored if you did it. But I'm, I haven't heard it yet. I know she's recorded it. It's currently oh. with, the, with the technicians who are the production house that's going to do it. But as a theater artist, I'm so just, I'm like, shouldn't I direct it? Like, I kind of know where I want to pause. I want, and I'm like, just hey, you want it. To notate it for her <laughs> but it's interesting because as a music director i'm so used to working and i've been so blessed with working with incredible creators and composers yeah. that probably have that same impulse of wanting to tell me exactly how to do everything and i always love the ones that kind of let it go and accept what it is i bring to the table and so it's interesting to see it in that reverse way of like my instinct to want to dive in and to micromanage and i'm like no right. geraldine she's an artist she's the one who's used to doing these things trust her and my big question i was am I going to listen to it or not? <laughs> and I'm a little scared. And I've worked with many composers that will not come in the room until it's all taught. And they'll usually just kind of skittle out as soon as it's done. Like they just don't really want to be around the process. And some are like hands-on, but I can, I can see both. And I think it, um, I just appreciate creators, you know, like, and what they do and the let go they have to do. And now that I'm going through that let go, it's like, ah, it's fascinating and exciting and, and terrifying. All yeah. Else. Well, this process <laughs> of letting go is, is interesting. I mean, I think that in some way applies to all the things we talked about today. In teaching, we sometimes let go in the sense of if a student comes to us with different interests than us, we let them lead the way. In music directing, we're working with actors who, of course, bring their own interpretations and then with poetry in the way you're describing with Audible. So I think that's a valuable skill to develop. Yeah, just to finish on what you're saying about teaching, my main thing with teaching always, because you were talking about leading, who is leading, uh -huh. yeah. I always like to present solutions to problems. So I will, I never start a young child. I never start by telling them how to sit and how to have their hand position. I never do. I'm like, I will wait until they cannot play at the speed they want to play. And I'd be like, wow, what if you tried playing on the tip of your fingers? And then they're like, wow, that worked, I doubled it. I'm like, isn't that cool? And now it's a solution instead of something that I've to learn. So that's something I'm always, I always wait for the problem to create yeah. a solution. And I think the advantage of that is also you let them discover the correct thing rather than just dictate it to them from the get-go. If, as you say, yeah. they realize, oh, I can't play this fast if I um, have my hands in this position, then they have no choice but to adapt. And I think that can be in some ways more powerful than just from day one being like, do this. Yeah. So I'll challenge them. I'll be, I'll be like, I'll be sure. I'll be like, look, let's play as fast as you can. And I'll play it 10 times faster than them. And they'll try and we'll make it a game and it'll get goofy and we're laughing. But then they're like, do you want to play faster? And they're like, yes. I'm like, try this. And they're like, wow, that worked. It was, I was in control. I didn't lose it. And they feel that sense of like, you know, control and well, technical ability. Great. 
Well, I really appreciate uh, you coming on this podcast today. That was so much great Thanks information about, me. yeah, lots of different things. And I'll make sure to link to um, your website and also to Thanks. the information about your new poetry volumes. Naked on Amazon, Kindle and paperback. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.